Thanks, Drew. We've just listened to him read all of John chapter 13. Jesus has come to Jerusalem for his last trip. This is the last time. And this time is different than all of his other trips to Jerusalem. This time, he doesn't head for the temple like he did on his first trip. And he doesn't head for the national asylum like he did on his second trip. This time, he doesn't go to any public place to confront the rulers, the power brokers. He's already done that. This is the turning point in John's gospel. Everything up until now has been Jesus' public ministry. And now it shifts into a very private conversation between now and the end of chapter 16 with his followers, his closest followers. And then in chapter 17, he's going to pray his great high priestly prayer. And then as soon as that's over, he's arrested. So what's happened is that for the first half of John's gospel, we've seen Jesus standing up, a leader, strong, performing miracles, being a shepherd out in front of his flock, leading them, resisting the powerful, evil ideologies that have gripped the power brokers, debating with them. But now he changes. Now he pulls into a private way of behaving. Now he goes to the upper room with his closest followers and he begins to share with them a secret. He shares with them the secret of what is about to happen. But he doesn't do it with explanation. He does it with a powerful, symbolic action, a parable, a living parable, the foot washing. Many of you, if you've ever been in church before, you're familiar maybe with this passage of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And many of us, we've looked at that, that event in the life of Jesus as an example, which he says, it is an example. But there's more going on in the passage than that. What Jesus is doing here is he is showing his disciples an image that's rich with symbol that explains the cross. This is one of the reasons that we always come to this passage on this night. Because tomorrow we go to the cross. The washing of the disciples' feet and then the conversation that provokes, it gives us the lens that Jesus wants us to have when we look at the cross. And we ask, what is the cross about? He wants us to look at it through the lens of the washing of the feet. And that by doing that, we will see the cross the way Jesus saw it. Not the way modern interpreters would maybe see it. Not the way other people would see it. But what he's doing is he's giving his followers an advanced framework. And he says to them, you're not going to understand this now. But if you will look at the cross after it happens, after the resurrection, through the lens of what's happening in this upper room this night, then you can begin to see the cross on Jesus' terms. 
So what I want us to do tonight is I want us to look in the upper room. And I want us to pick out four characters and their interactions with Jesus in and around the foot washing and see how this opens up for us a lens on the crucifixion. I want us to do what happened in that room. I want us to head into this weekend looking at this weekend, looking at the cross, looking at the resurrection through the lens of the upper room and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So this will prepare us. Let's start with the beloved disciple. John chapter 13, verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. Now, to see this properly in your mind's eye, it's helpful to know that in this particular culture, at this particular time, slaves ate sitting and standing, and free people ate their meals reclining. That's the way this culture worked. They reclined on couches. And this beloved disciple was apparently reclining right next to Jesus. So you can imagine if your legs are behind you and you're leaning on your left elbow, whoever's right next to you, they're right next to you. This beloved disciple, he's reclining right next to Jesus. It says in verse 23, a literal translation, reclining literally on the heart of Jesus. It's the Greek word kolpos. Translated heart, but it's commonly used as a euphemism for a woman's womb. For that inner part of a woman that is the source of life and fecundity. In John chapter 1 verse 18, we're told that Jesus is on the colpus of the Father. And it's translated most often in our English Bibles as he's on the Father's side. It's more than that. It's that Jesus is reclining on the bosom of the Father, on the heart of the Father, that he's in the bosom of the Father, that he's in the womb of the Father. So by saying that the beloved disciple is reclining in the womb of Jesus, the author of of this gospel is showing us that the beloved disciple is dwelling in Jesus as Jesus dwells in the Father. And notice how this plays out in a real friendship. In John chapter 13 verse 21, we're told that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And and he gives his disciples this terrible news. One of you will betray me. Now he's referring to Judas. Judas, who was one of Jesus' friends. Judas, who was someone Jesus trusted. Someone whose feet Jesus had just lovingly washed. Not in some perfunctory way, but really wash them. Because when you're laying on your left arm at a meal and you look over your shoulder, you're looking at the person's feet next to you. Washing feet was a very important part of having a more pleasant experience at the meal. Not symbolically washing feet, but really washing. Jesus had just done this 
for Judas. And Judas had already begun the betrayal. Have you ever been betrayed? By a good friend? By a spouse? By a child? By a sibling? By a parent? Is there anything more horrible? It's terrible. I, I do pastoral counseling. I've been doing this for 20 years with people. Betrayal is the worst thing I ever deal with when I'm dealing with someone. Nothing comes close to the, the pain of betrayal. It's terrible. It's worse than rejection. It's worse than death. It's when someone uses your secrets, the thoughts you've confided in them, and turns them against you to destroy you. So when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, I think that we should imagine that he cannot contain his emotions. Can you you imagine? How would your lip quiver as you looked at your family and said, one of you, can you see his face getting red and splotchy? Do you think his hand was trembling? Are there tears in the corner of his eyes? The disciples are shattered. They're speechless. They don't know what to say. But the beloved disciple who's right next to him, he asked him in a whisper, We know it's a whisper because nobody else hears the rest of the exchange. Because the rest of the exchange identifies Judas as a betrayer. But then when Judas gets up to leave, none of them know that's what's happening. This is a whispered conversation. He says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one I'm about to give this morsel of bread. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So much is going on here. But notice, it's the beloved who can whisper to Jesus. And it's with the beloved that Jesus shares his deepest pain. After all, remember, he was resting on the heart of Jesus. More than anyone else, he sensed the wound in Jesus, the anguish in his heart. He felt the shudder of rejection wash viscerally through Jesus' body And what we see in this moment is that each one of us can have such a relationship with Jesus. You are invited into this intimate friendship that can only be described as in the womb of Jesus. You and I, each one of us, are called into intimate friendship with the Lord Christ to be still with him. To be present to him. I think sometimes a lot of us think of our devotions as a moment where we're trying to talk with God. And get still so that we can be present to God. But here we see that God is inviting us to get so close to him. That we can receive in our heart the pain. That's in his heart. The wounds that are in his heart. The love that is in his heart. So that we can remain in him in those moments. And we can whisper to him. And he can whisper to us. There's a good chance that the beloved disciple, by the way, at this moment was less than 20 years old. 
No matter your age. No matter your age. This is the invitation. So many of you have experienced this. Moments in your life where you totally trust. You completely love the Lord Jesus Christ. Moments where you know that he loves you. Moments of intimacy with him. Where you are surrendered in love. And resting on his heart. That's what he wants for you. And for me. And for my children. And for your children. And for those people that you work with. And your neighbors. In such an intimate friendship. That you can whisper to him, and he can whisper to you, and you can ask him the questions that other people want to ask, but they can't. He wants us to look to the cross through the lens of this intimate friendship. That's part of what he's doing at the cross, is he's opening the way for all of us to have this. To no more settle for sitting across the room from Jesus. To no more settle for objective discussions of him. But to move in to the womb of the Lord Jesus. So that's one lesson for us. As we watch Jesus prepare his disciples for his crucifixion and resurrection, he came to invite us into an intimate friendship with Himself, And he is the creator, the one and only true God. At the center of the universe is not power. It's Jesus with a heart inviting you to his heart. This is the flaming center of the universe. Not cold, hard naturalism, but the Lord Christ. Now let's return to the upper room. Let's take a good look at a person, the person lying on the other side of Jesus. Did any of you catch who was on the other side of him? Nearly as close? Judas. The first thing we're told about Judas is in verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. Then in verse 27, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, he was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night in every sense of the word, in every dimension of the word. How does the great gospel of John begin? With Christ who is the light. And the darkness will not overcome it. You don't get to this moment in John's gospel and let night just sit there as a placeholder for time of day. From the very beginning of John's gospel, there's been this growing confrontation hanging over the life of Jesus. A confrontation between the light and the darkness. And now that confrontation is coming to a massive climax. And Jesus has been, and Judas has been willingly enlisted into the forces of darkness. Now back at the beginning, in chapter 1, we're told that this is all happening in, in verse 1 we're told that this is all happening right before the feast did anybody get it chapter 13 verse 1 which feast passover what was passover 
It was the yearly festival when the Jewish people celebrated the most important moment in their history, the moment when God rescued them from slavery to Egypt. This was their version of the Revolutionary War, and Passover was their version of the 4th of July. It was the decisive victory that gave them independence as a nation. So Jesus chooses Passover as the framework within which we are to think about the crucifixion. And so what does all of this mean? In a word, it means that as we look at Judas and darkness and all that's going on there, and we realize that this is right on the cusp of the feast of Passover, it means that he wants us to look at the cross not just as an invitation into an intimate relationship with with him, but also we are to look at the cross as the act of liberation. That's what Passover was. Passover was the great liberating moment that gave them freedom. Through the cross, God himself is liberating Israel and the whole world. But this time, on this Passover, it is liberation from a far greater enemy than Egypt and Pharaoh. On the cross, Jesus is battling the darkness. He's battling the death. He's battling the evil that is the real enemy behind your enemy. John chapter 12, verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, in our modern, de-supernaturalized view of the world, this is tough for us. And so we've reduced the cross to forgiveness of sin. Because as moderns, we don't really have adequate frameworks for evil. That appears fundamentalistic. Lowbrow, unsophisticated. Our society teaches that the fundamental problem of the world is a lack of enlightenment. With all the gifts that the enlightenment brings, it's a lack of knowledge, a lack of education, a lack of progress, a lack of technology, a lack of choice, a lack of capital. But, but the evidence is it's staring us in the face. Education, technology, capital, progress, choice. As good as all of those things are, as important and beneficial as they are, they cannot account for evil. Death and evil are the real enemy behind the enemy. It's so fascinating. Here in John chapter 13, Jesus is flanked by love and betrayal. Notice how evil creeps in to the cracks at the very moment when love is going to the limit. And that's what our modern world has to come to grips with. That even in our best moments where capital and education and progress and choice and all of these things do their very best, evil is there. It is in the cracks. And all of that stuff can account for it. It is our smartest wealthiest nations inventing chemical bombs. How can you account for that? How how has education helped a nation stop brutalizing? It hasn't. 
When you are betrayed, no matter how wealthy you are, when you suffer injustice, no matter how educated you are, when you are ravaged by addictions, no matter how well you run your company, when, you, when darkness overtakes you or your family or a country or a company, there is an enemy behind the enemy. And just as Israel's God overcame the power of Egypt and even the myth-laden power of the Red Sea, so Jesus' own understanding of his death is that through his death, through his crucifixion, the one and only true God was actually overthrowing the dark powers that are our real enemy. Something happened on the cross. Something happened that, is, that has an earth-shattering implication. Something as a result of which the world is now in a different place. That the turning moment in history was not the Enlightenment. We do not divide time into dark ages and modernity based on Kant. Time bent around Christ. Something happened with Christ that was far more profound and real than the scientific revolution. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Because of the cross, you and I are now free to give our allegiance to the God who made the world. And before the cross, we did not have that freedom. The cross is what gives you and me the freedom to give our allegiance to the creator. To come to him. And to discover that he is a living and true God. And to enter into that kind of relationship that the beloved disciple had. And it's in that relationship with Jesus that we can discover not just freedom from, but the real freedom to. The freedom to become genuinely human. The freedom to know the one true God. To to become who we were made to be. The cross broke the power. And the stranglehold of darkness over this world. And that enables us now to give our allegiance to God. And we, could, we didn't have the freedom to do that before that moment. So in the upper room, we, say, we see that Jesus wants us as we turn our attention to the cross. He wants us to be thinking in terms of an invitation into an intimate relationship. And he wants us to be thinking in terms of the powerful Atomic bomb giving freedom for us now to look to the God who is the one true creator. Third picture, it's good old Peter. Such a vivid scene with Peter. He's such a complex character um, in the Gospels. And here in this passage, in verse 6, Jesus goes to wash his feet. And Peter, he's like, no, no, Jesus, I should be washing your feet. I should be serving you. That's a beautiful thing, right? Here's Peter saying, I love you. Like, I'm loyal to you. He's not trying to offend Jesus. He just thought that to be a good and generous disciple, he should wash Jesus' feet. But Jesus is quick to answer him in verse 8. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And this terrifies Peter. 
So he overcorrects, right? He reacts in panic. Then don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head too. He just doesn't get it. Surely some of us can relate. Those moments in life where two or three times in a row you stick your foot in your mouth, where you just feel like the awkward person, like you're trying, but you're just in left field. And when we watch Peter in this moment, he's confused by Jesus. He, he can't figure Jesus out. He's looking at Jesus through the wrong lens. And the lens he's looking at him through distorts Jesus. Now, he doesn't know this. He doesn't know his problem is his angle of perception. Later on in verse 36, this comes up again. Jesus is explaining to the disciples that what he's about to do is something they, where he's about to go is something, place they can't go. He's going to do something they can't do. They can't follow him. And Peter jumps right in and says, Lord, why can't I follow you? I would die for you. And Jesus says, really, Peter? You're going to die for me? Did you forget my teaching on the good shepherd? I died for you. No, I'm sorry, Peter. Not only are you not going to die for me, what you're about to do for me is far worse. Peter, you're going to betray me. That darkness that just grabbed a hold of Judas, you're going to dance with it too. You're going to die for me, Peter? You're going to save the Savior? That's what he wants to do. He doesn't yet believe that he needs to be saved. But he does. There's darkness in Peter. And the only way that Peter can be saved is to let Jesus save him. Judas Judas closed up on himself. He closed himself into all of his own resources. He locked himself up in his pride. He refused to submit to Jesus. He pretended that he was God. And here is Peter following that same path. Not out of a malicious intent. What drove Peter to be like this? I I don't know. Is it some wound from his childhood that makes him want to be the savior of the world? Is it some lack of affirmation that makes him feel like he needs to accomplish something for the Savior? I don't know where this comes from, but go back to the foot washing fiasco. Jesus told Peter, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Faith precedes understanding. The condition of understanding is faith. This is one of the deepest lies of the Enlightenment. That doubt gets us to certainty. That's exactly wrong. Faith gets us to understanding. Obedience and faith precede understanding. Isn't this the way we raise our children? Do we want them to understand first? No. Don't stick your finger in the light socket. Doesn't matter if you understand that or not. It's six months old. Keep your tongue out of the receptacle. And if the child refuses to be a child, 
If the child closes in on their own understanding, they will be locked in the prison. But if the child turns to the parent in humility and trust, they will grow to understand. That's why he says to them, little children. This is Peter's problem. Peter's problem is that he has not yet humbled himself. This is hard. He has to trust the promises before he understands them if he wants to ever understand them. He hasn't yet become humble. To have access to the liberating power of the cross, to have access to the intimate relationship with Jesus, we have to humble ourselves. We have to get childlike in our relationship to Jesus. We have to turn our lives toward Jesus with all the humility of a child. Peter needs to learn to no longer count on his own strength and resources, but to accept his own weakness and to depend upon Jesus. It is so hard to become like a child when you're an adult. To trust unconditionally. So in the upper room on that first Maundy Thursday, we see that Jesus is giving us a picture of the cross. And he's, he's leading us into it so that we can enter Friday and Saturday and Sunday with the right lens. With a lens that's, that, that knows in advance what we're getting here is access to a relationship with God. What we're getting here is liberation. What we're getting here is salvation. And finally, not Peter, not Judas... Not the beloved, but let's look at the group as a whole. When we look at all of them, all of these disciples in that upper room, and we watch Jesus washing their feet, we're looking at this living parable. Jesus had to take off his clothes, his outer garment, to wash their feet. Does anybody know the next time Jesus disrobes? It's on the cross. John is setting you up for this. On the cross, he will once again lay aside his garments. (coughs) He will once again lay aside the garments of glory and descend to wash and to cleanse. He will put aside the garments of glory and put on human nature to wash us. Jesus must wash us if we are to belong to him. And once he's washed us, once we've come to him in the waters of baptism, what we need day by day after that is the regular washing of those parts of ourselves, our personalities and our bodies, which get dirty and dusty. I love this image. I mean, all of us, right? So many of us, we come week after week and we've got road dirt. And he offers us cleansing for that. So here in the upper room, Jesus is giving us all of these ways to think about the cross. And he gets to the end of it all and he says, now, if you can do this, if you can let me save you, If you can tap into the liberating power that I offer, if you can come into an intimate relationship with me, then you can begin to love the way I do. 
Now, you can love the way I love. This is the only way we can live out the new commandment. Because we don't have the resources within ourselves to really love like Jesus. But if we would do this, if we would humble ourselves, if we would come to the cross in these kinds of ways, we will, each one of us, discover the remarkable power that is the flaming heart of the universe flowing through us, enabling us to serve the least, to forgive, to look our betrayer in the eye and still wash his feet. Let's pray.